<laughs> hey, uh, kids ages 3 through pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. Uh, the, the rest of you, open your Bibles to uh, the book of Luke, second chapter. <laughs> As you're doing that, let me remind us what we're doing here. Advent is a season of longing. I know we're not used to that, right? As a matter of fact, for many of us, many of you have been coming you know, this last four weeks, you've probably been wondering, like, man, it took you all like three weeks to get to all the Christmas songs. Why did it take so long? And you've been doing like one a service. Well, traditionally, the celebration style kind of Christmas hymns are supposed to be done after Christmas, not before. Because Advent is a season in which we are longing, waiting for the coming of our Savior. And, and so we, we burst into the, the, uh, the celebratory uh, songs after Christmas because Christmas is meant to be a season, not a day. This season that we're in currently is meant to build tension and expectation, which is why we've been looking at these four songs recorded for us in Luke's gospel. Uh, they're, they're full of longing and expectation. They help us live into the longing for the second coming of Jesus as they did for his first. And so, you know, uh, we looked first at the, at the song of a, of a young girl. Then we looked at the song of an old priest. We looked at the song of a heavenly army. This week, we look at the song of an aged prophet who holds in his arms the great comfort that he was waiting for. So if you have your place in Luke chapter 2, if you'd stand, that's our habit here, in honor of God's word. I'm going to be reading verses 25 uh, through 35. This is God's word, friends. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when, his, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation of the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul also. So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come into this time, really the last opportunity we'll have before Christmas Eve to to be shaped by your word into uh, a people who are longing for the coming of our Savior, we ask that you would do just that. Would you form us, sculpt us, and mold us? Would you you make us uh, soft and uh, malleable in your hands? And Lord, would you change us? God, give us eyes to see you and ears to hear from you and a heart to receive you, we ask, during this time especially. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So in just five days, our lives, or at least our morning, will will be filled with colored paper, with ribbons, 
with bows, with excitement, with disappointment, and with resignation. Maybe it won't come in that order, but it generally comes like that, right? It's kind of predictable. I mean, if you're still young, maybe it hasn't set in yet, but most of us have come to understand that the buildup that now begins the day after Halloween uh, and, and goes up until the morning of December 25th or maybe the afternoon or maybe a couple days thereafter, given you know, family schedules and traveling and all the different celebrations, that all of those things can't deliver on their promises. That there's a hope, a longing that this season kind of taps into, right? That kind of gets at us and it, it, and it wells up in us this, this, uh, this sense of fulfillment. Finally, finally, maybe, that's going to be met. But when the paper is placed in the trash, the toys have all been played with, and the pain of eating too much finally sets in, we find it still remains. We aren't whole. Our souls are still hungry. It wasn't enough. It's never enough. But what if someone put into your arms the very thing that actually could satisfy you? Like, not just like, here's the new flat screen, and you're like, but I mean like, the thing that really would satisfy you, the the thing that really would answer your longings. What would that be like? What would you do? Because this morning we looked to an old man who had that very experience, the very thing that would fill his soul, and ours, by the way, was placed in his arms. And he just sang. So we're going to look at this passage in this song in three ways. We're going to look at the singer, we're going to look at the song, and then we're going to look at the shape. Okay, The singer, the song, and the shape. Uh, let's, let's start with the singer himself. Look down at verses 25 to 27. Here's what we're told. There's this dude living in Jerusalem. His name's Simeon. Um, it, we, we assume he's older given some of the things that we've been told about him, uh, though, though that's more inference than anything else. He's said to be righteous and devout. Now, if you've been coming to Holy Cross for any amount of time, this, is, this might be a little confusing to you, right? Because, uh, because you're like, Rick, I thought no one was righteous. No, not one. And here we go. Here's this guy, and he's righteous. Uh, you're, you're right, but here's, here's what I'd say. This word righteous can be used in, a, in several different ways in the scriptures that's important for us to get. The word itself simply means faithful. And he's, he's faithful. Um, and sometimes it can mean righteous as in like meritorious, as in you've been, you are good enough. And that's the context in which we get the no one, no one is, right? And in other times, and in this context especially, what it becomes clear that it means is that he is faithful to God. He has faith that God is going to come and answer his promises uh, to, to rescue the world, to rescue his people, and that Simeon is actually living into that. That's what makes him faithful, and that word devout uh, means something similar. It, it, it kind of speaks to that. So if you're, a, if you're a first century Jew and you're hearing this and you know of Simeon, you would describe him as righteous and devout. What, the way that we would, like, that's, that's your uber spiritual guy. That's the guy who's like, man, if there's a dude that I want to model myself after spiritually, that's him. But here's how we know for certain that, he, that, that saying that he's righteous does not mean that he somehow believes himself or that Luke believes him to be good enough to earn God's favor. It says that he was waiting for consolation. That he is waiting for comfort, right? You look there at the end of verse 25. It says that, that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. That, that word, comfort or consolation, believe it or not, it's the same word that we heard last week when Isaiah Lassiter stood up here and he read from Isaiah 40. 
The beginning of Isaiah 40, uh, it's, it's also the beginning of, kind of the, the great beginning of Handel's Messiah, right? Comfort, comfort ye my people. So that very word, like saying that he was waiting for that, he's waiting for that comfort, that consolation that, that of, of Israel, of God's people, literally like those words together would have brought to mind this entire story that, that Isaiah 40 is speaking to. Because those words in Isaiah are about God coming to fulfill an ancient promise. One that the Bible is all about. And, and that's hard for a lot of us because many of us have grown up, whether it's because of our culture, because of because the way in which the Bible is handled if we, if we were churchgoers, or way in which we just assume it is, or, or maybe it's just because uh, we, understand, we, we think we understand religions that, that we think the Bible is like all other religious books. Like it's a book of rules. Right? Or, or a book of stories to warm your heart, kind of chicken soup for the Christian soul, or, or it's a book of people to emulate. Now, it actually does have those things, right? The Bible does have some rules in it, and it does have some stories. But if you're being honest, especially if you're in the Old Testament, not many of them are going to warm your heart, okay? <laughs> and if that, you've never had that experience, like, I, I, go back and read, just read through Judges. Just read through Judges. There's very little there that's going to be like, oh, warm fuzzy. Uh, but, it, so, but the Bible is a story. It's a story of God creating a good world, of humanity turning from him and throwing the entire world into chaos, and of him promising to restore us to himself and to set the world to rights. And Isaiah 40, which is what Luke is hearkening back to when he's talking about Simeon, Isaiah 40 is about that moment. It's about that moment when God would finally come to draw his people back, to finally deal with our sin. So here is the most spiritual guy around. He's righteous. He's devout. He's, this, is the, this is the guy. But he isn't setting his hopes on his spirituality. He's setting his hopes. He's waiting for consolation. Now this is huge, so listen close if you can. Many of us have been fooled into thinking that Christianity is really about being good. Which is why many of us have ignored Christianity. Because on the one hand, some of us are pretty, we're, we're, we kind of think we're pretty good anyway, right? We, we do the moral thing, we're doing all right, so why do I need Christianity? Because who needs to, I'm doing fine. Others of us have ignored it because we so long ago gave up on the idea that we could ever be good, that what's the point? Why, why listen to some preacher tell me I need to be good? So if you're here this morning and either of those is you, can I tell you it is not an accident that you're here this morning. Because I'm here to tell you that Christianity isn't about being good. The Bible tells us we can't be good enough, ever. And it, and it tells us that because our problem isn't that we're not good. Our problem is that we're independent. And as I, am, as I often say, you can't fix your independence problem independently. We have to wait for consolation. We have to wait for God to act, to, to come and rescue us. And so here's a dude who's, who was told by God, and we're not entirely certain how that happened, just that it did, right? I don't know whether he just had a really strong impression. I, I get the sense it was more verbal than that. But he, he had heard from God that he would not die before he saw God's consolation, saw God's answer for our sin. And that's what we see there in verses 29 to 30. We look at someone finding consolation. Look there. Joseph and Mary are coming to the temple to offer sacrifice for the firstborn. Now, now that, that practice is going to sound a little strange for you, uh, uh, for many of us, if not for all of us. That comes from Exodus 13, from Numbers 18. 
Interestingly, this was something that was put in the life of Israel as a continual reminder of the Passover. Right? That, that this was where God, because of the blood of the sacrificial lamb, passed over the firstborn of Israel and, 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 and cursed the, the firstborn of the Egyptians. So, so, um, so Bible nerds, take note of this. This entire event happens in response to the, the practice of, of celebrating and re, kind of reenacting the Passover of Israel And here it happens while Joseph and Mary are carrying in the Lamb of God into the temple. It's just an interesting irony that that we see happen. And, and so, so this is going on. They're, they're, they're bringing this, uh, the, the baby in and Simeon sees this couple come in with Mary's son. And it says that he, he, he takes him into his arm. He grabs the kid, which by the way, if you're in Walmart, do not do this. Right? You will be arrested. Uh, but he, he comes in and he sees the child and he just he takes him into his arms and he begins singing. And he says this, Now, Lord, let your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Listen, I say this a ton, but we need to hear this a ton because everything in us pulls us in a different direction. Simeon is saying that the consolation he was waiting for is this baby. Now, not so fast. I know you're like, yeah, yeah, I got, I got that. No, no. I didn't say that the consolation was what this baby would eventually one day teach or, or, uh, or the miracles that he would perform or what he would say. That the baby is God's consolation. He sees this baby and he says, God, I can now die in peace because I know that you, will, you have answered your promises. I'm holding your answer in my hands. So, you know, this morning, I don't really care if you're investigating Christianity, being Christian as long as you can remember. We need to continually come back to this. Our hope before God, our hope in life and in death, as the old catechism says, is, is, not, is, is, is neither your exemplary moral status, nor is it that God's going to just kind of overlook all the garbage in your life. Our hope is not that we can follow the best rules or give enough money or just come to church and be tolerant enough. God's consolation is Jesus. And what that means to us is that our sin, that that guilt that we tend to feel, that sense that like something's not right and I'm not right, that's real. That's not neurosis. That's not pathological. That's real. But... God also is not asking you to make up for it because you can't. And neither can I. Instead, Jesus died to bear the judgment due for it. On the cross, he bore the poured out wrath of God for sin in your place. He's consolation. But it's not just that. That would be good. But that's not, that's not the fullness of the gospel. It's not the fullness of the good news. When we come to faith in Christ, it isn't just our sin that is taken from us. It's also that we get his record, his spotless record. It is given to us in, in theological language, in kind of the, the language of our theological tradition. That is called double imputation. It, it means, it means that, that God unites us to Christ so that what is true of him becomes true of us. He lived perfectly, so therefore before God, God sees us as having lived perfectly. No matter how jacked up you are this morning. Faith in Christ means that you, you come before God with, with his record of service and not yours. And 
And he bore the judgment for sin, so before God, so did we. So that when you, when you mess up, when I mess up, we don't need to go to God and say, okay, I'm, so, I'm really sorry this time, and it'll all be... No, it's done. Before God, because you are united to Christ, his death for sin becomes yours. This is why Jesus is God's consolation. Jesus is the good news. He's not just the part of the good news, or even the bringer of the good news. He is the good news. He is the gospel. And friends, that is why we celebrate Christmas. Some of y'all have had great teachers in your life, right? People in high school, elementary school, maybe college, who just who shaped you, helped form you, and you, you think they're great. When's the last time, you know, maybe, maybe you know, you're older, they've been, they've been gone for a long time. Do you celebrate their birthday every year? By giving other people gifts? Like, is that part of your normal? Maybe, I don't know. We don't celebrate the birth of good teachers or even great leaders. But when that person is both God in the flesh and the only hope for the world... Man, you throw a party. Simeon isn't done, though, and so neither are we. Let's, let's look at the song, okay? We've already heard part of it, right? Now, now there's the public part. Look down at verse 31. He says, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared before the face of all peoples. Literally, in the original, it says, You prepared it in their face. <laughs> I love that. And, and let me be clear on something. In the, in the worldview of first century Jews, there are two kinds of people. Right? Jews and everyone else. It's kind of like how this week there's two kinds of people. There's like Star Wars fans, and then there's like the other four of you. Right? You can raise your hands if you want. No, just a joke. When When he says the peoples, he means everyone else. He's talking about everyone else. Does that strike you as odd? Because my guess is if you think about it, it will. What he's saying is, God is doing this work, doing this act, providing his consolation for everyone to see. This is another critical aspect of Christianity that Christmas hits us with. Christianity is public truth. It's public truth. Here's what I mean. If you've read the Bible as a whole, but especially the Gospels, you'll notice, as you're going through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you'll notice this stubborn insistence on markers. Right? Just... In, in just these first two chapters of Luke's gospel, man, he's like, you know, this happened when this dude was the governor over this area and this guy was kind of one of his sub... He's like, I'm placing this firmly in the history that you know. This is public truth. Can I tell you this? As, as, as someone who studied a bunch of religion, I was a religion major in college, which is, which is not Christianity. It was religions, okay? This is not normal in religious texts. You don't find this in the Quran. You don't find this in, in Buddhist texts. And this is because most religions deal with teachings and not with events. You see, ultimately in Buddhism, it doesn't matter if Siddhartha Gautama actually sat under a fig tree to attain enlightenment to later become Buddha. It only matters what he did to get there so that we can too. But Christianity, the Bible, is all about God acting in space and time because it isn't about what we do. It's about what he has done. 
Which is why it is truth to be reckoned with. It is something real in history. It has witnesses and testimony. It, it evidence like any other historical event. God didn't do this in a closet. Or in a mount, on a mountain alone with some dude in a cave. Some angel coming down to a guy in a cave saying, here's my rules for you. He did this in front of everyone. For everyone to see. So that when someone comes and goes, nuh-uh. He goes, no, no, for real, man. I mean, just go talk to, go talk to these dudes. Like... They watched it happen. Luke is writing this gospel with, in, in, in a time period in which if you doubted his story, he could have very easily said, hold on. Hey, can you come over here? This guy was there. Like, he heard the dude singing in the temple. Can, I mean, that guy's long gone, but this guy was there. Can you just tell him what you heard? Yeah, okay, we're good. You, you know what I mean? Like, this is public truth. It isn't a preference any more than, like, the Battle of Gettysburg is a preference. I choose not to believe that battle ever happened. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, you can choose that if you'd like. doesn't make it true. Either it happened or it didn't, but you've got to reckon with it. That brings us to a light that shines. Why did God do this before all the peoples? Look down at verse 32, because Simeon says this. It's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you remember um, Zechariah when he sang. He talked a lot about light as well. Um, and here's how we pull these kind of threads together. This public event, the, the coming and the work of this Savior is meant to be announced. You know, I, I said this last week. Jesus is not a provincial deity. You remember that? What, what I meant by that is that it's not like Jesus was just, he's, he's, you know, he's this group's savior. He's this group's God. But these people over here, they have a different one. He's not a provincial deity. He isn't just one hope. He is the hope for the world. And that means the news of Jesus, who he is, what he has done, is meant to be told to the world. And, and that's, that's kind of consistent with the entire story of the Bible. When you have an encounter with God, when you, when you come to know Him, you are sent to show Him to others. And you see this as you're reading the Old Testament. You see this with Abraham. Abraham meets God and he says, go. You're going to go to this people. You're going to go to this other land. You need to pack up and, and leave. You see it with Moses. He meets Moses and the bush is on fire, but it's not. And it's really weird. And God says, uh, you're going to go to Pharaoh and talk to him. He's like, uh, or you see it with, with Isaiah. Isaiah's in a worship service in the temple, and suddenly he sees the Lord, or at least the, the train of his robe. Um, and, and he has this encounter with, with God, and God says, good, now you're going to go. You're going to go tell people. You see it with, in the New Testament. You see it with Peter, right? Peter's on the boat, and, and Jesus is like, hey, throw your nets over there. And he's like, oh, come on, man. I've been fishing all night, and I know a lot more about fishing than you do. And if I need to build a table, I'll talk to you, but this is fishing. And he's like, just throw them over there. He's like, okay, I'll do it. He throws them over. They can't pull the nets in there so much. And he looks at Jesus. He finally has a realization. I know who this guy is. He says, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus said, no, no, no. I'm going to send you to make you a fisher of men. We see it with the Apostle Paul, right? Paul is breathing out murder, it says in the Scriptures, on his way to, to, uh, to, to capture and imprison Christians. He's not a Christian, and, and he, he meets with the risen Lord on the road. The Lord uh, knocks him down, makes him blind, all this stuff. And, and then he says, he says Paul, you're, this isn't just for you, I'm sending you. 
And this makes perfect sense, but only if you remember everything we've talked about this morning. Because if the story of the Bible is true, that that every human being, not just a few, but every human being is broken by nature, alienated from God and in need of rescue. If that is is true, and if if Jesus is that rescue, and, and we appropriate his work through faith in him, then it makes sense that we would need to announce God's rescue plan. And that we all should, should repent and place our faith in Jesus. Because not to do so is simply to leave broken people without hope and in darkness. So here's where this gets real. This little bit isn't unique to Simeon. Because Jesus called his disciples to do just that, right? Mm. This is where it gets uncomfortable. This is stretching your neck a little bit. Jesus called his disciples to go into all the world and to make other disciples. Because you see, the gospel is meant to be a light that shines in the darkness, not a candle that burns in the middle of the day. (laughs) What I mean by that is it isn't simply something to be celebrated among those who already believe it. Look at all the light we have. Let's rejoice in this light. More of it. It is meant to be a light that shines in dark places. But notice I said that Jesus sent his disciples. (laughs) He sent his disciples, not his professionals. He sent his disciples, not his professionals. Jesus came to be a light to the nations, to the peoples, those that don't know him. And you and I, all of us, if you are a follower of Jesus, are the means for that. Which means that, if you're anything like me, that terrifies you, right? (laughs) Wait a minute, Rick. You're the pastor. You're the professional. Yeah, I know. It terrifies us. This is why I always make you this promise. Um, I believe fervently that every Christian should be able to articulate the gospel both for themselves, because you and I need to preach it to ourselves all the time, and to others. If those conversations, though, are hard for you for whatever reason, I promise you this. You just bring people here, I'll do it, and then you can just have a follow-up conversation. Like, man, that person's crazy. What do you think they were talking about today? That guy? But here's the thing. We are called to go The nations, the peoples, can't have a light that reveals anything to them if no one brings it. So two things on this. One, if you're here this morning and you you, uh, claim to be a follower of Jesus, but your heart has no desire to ever share Jesus with another person, not that you're not a, not, I'm not saying if you're afraid to, okay, that's, that's a whole other thing. I don't think that ever goes away. But, but if you simply could care less, let me put out this warning. We will always commend that which we cherish. We will always commend that which we cherish. If you have no desire to share Jesus with others, I would ask whether you cherish him. Not, I don't know how, it makes me scared. If you have no desire to share Jesus with others, you see people who, who's, who maybe look good on the outside, you get to know them and you realize, man, this person is just lost. You're like, eh, somebody else can deal with that. My question would be, do you cherish him? Second, if you just need help doing it. <laughs> if you're like, I... I have the desire, Rick. I just don't know how, right? What I would say is come see me because I would love to teach you what I know and maybe give you a tool that might help you. Okay. 
So that's the song. Let's lastly look at the shape real quick. First with this notion of opposition. Did you catch that in verse 33 to 34? I mean, the, the last part of this is really cheery, right? Jesus is appointed for the rising and the falling of many. He's assigned to be opposed. And now some of you are like, well, wait, Rick, you just said we're to take Jesus as a light to others. And now you're like, yeah, but he's going to be assigned to, to be opposed. Yeah, 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 I mean, that's about it. Is that really surprising? Because look, the Apostle Paul in another New Testament letter will say that the gospel is offensive. It's good news, but it is offensive. Jesus is assigned to be opposed because he tells us the truth about ourselves. And we hate it. I mean, think about it. We would all be fine with Jesus if, if... if he just came to teach us some good stuff. Here's a few good truths to learn. We, we would be fine with Jesus if he came to, to give us some good rituals to do. We would be fine with Jesus if he came to give us a loving ethic that never intrudes on our personal freedom. We'd be fine with him. It's not offensive. That's nice. Helpful. Ignorable. Nice. But he didn't. Jesus came to rescue us because we were so jacked up we could not rescue ourselves. Jesus came to live perfectly because on our best day, the Bible says that the best things we do are like filthy rags before God. Jesus came to die. To die. Like, you think he hung on that cross just to show you, look how much I love you. Like, when's the last time someone climbing on a cross said to you, like, man, that dude loves me? Like, no, he came to die because our sin really is that bad before God. This is a message that is offensive to our pride, offensive to our sense of self-sufficiency, offensive to our desire for autonomy. And so, friends, this morning, if the gospel is not offensive to you, it is either because you're not hearing it or because the Spirit of God is working in you such that you believe it. Because on its own... That is not something people want to hear. I didn't want to hear it for a long time. Some of y'all like even longer, right? It tells us that our situation is dire. That we don't need a hand up. That we don't need a reformation. That we need a resurrection. Secondly, there is a shadow that is revealed. In verse 35, Simeon tells Mary that a sword will pierce her heart. Most of our Bibles place that in some kind of parentheses. You get a sense that it's kind of something he said or put into the middle of taking her aside and said, oh, by the way, this ain't going to be nice for you, Mary. Sorry. We hate this, but we can't get away from it. Simeon is talking about the fact that Mary's son didn't come as a triumphant hero. Mary's son didn't come as a conquering Caesar, that he came to suffer, he came to bear, he came to die. And that isn't just true of Jesus, and it wasn't simply true of Mary. Like, Mary, this, this whole gospel thing is going to come, but it's going to come through pain to you. Pain to him, pain to you. Jesus, Jesus told his followers later in his life, he said, if you want to follow me, what it's going to look like for you is to lay down your life, to take up your own cross. You're going to have to carry it, just like me. Not for the same reasons but in the same way. 
which means that the shape of faith in Christ is cross-shaped. It is cruciform. So at times that will mean simply having to put to death those drives that, that can pull us away from Jesus. That's why the New Testament talks about it not as like a, a waiting around for, for, you know, hopefully God will do something in my life. It says as, you, as we grow in Christ, it's a, it's a method of putting to death those old ways and, and to taking up the life of Jesus in us. At other times it's going to mean bearing the scorn of others because we have faith in a crucified Messiah. But friends, here's what I need to tell you. That is not strange. When that happens to us, when we feel like it's death to change, when we feel like my, my, my connection to Jesus is, is, is giving me a... Like, people look on me weird now. They look at me funny. They, they think I'm, I'm, I'm weak and all of these things. That's not strange. That's normal. The Apostle Paul would put it like this later. He says, look, we are out here always, we are like those at the end of the victory parade. And that's where you'd put the, like, the, the prisoners, those who are being led to die in the arena, right? You're coming back, the army's coming back from victory, and, and at the end of the train is all the prisoners, the, the war prisoners that you're about to put to death. Saying, yeah, that's, that, that's us, right here. It's not strange. That's normal. Friends, there's a ton we could talk about here, but we don't have the time. I need to get to this last point. Okay? Lastly, let's, let's look at the end of verse 35 at Exposing Hearts. He says this, that Jesus has been appointed for the rising and for the fall of many, so that, he says, the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Okay, listen close to me on this one. Where you come down on Jesus, where you come down on who Jesus is, is the most revealing thing you could ever do. Here's what I mean. You say, yeah, 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 I believe in God. I do, I do good things. I'm not so sure about Jesus. God says, you believe in a God. You don't believe in me. You say, I mean, Jesus is fine for me. I don't think he's fine for everyone. God says, you don't, you, you, <laughs> you don't really think you need Jesus at all. He's your advisor. He's not your savior. An advisor is fine for some, but not for others. But if everyone's drowning, you don't say, oh, you know, I've got this guy pulling me out. But you don't really. Fine for me. Not sure about you. Where you stand on Jesus, where you stand on who Jesus is, is the statement of where your heart is. You may think you're doing pretty good, or you may think you're a disaster. But the question is, where are you with Jesus? Is he... Is he your hope? Or is he just your homie? Right? Is he your Lord or or is he kind of a liar? Is he the embodiment of God's grace for you? Or is he a reminder of God's disappointment in you? Don't let this question pass you over, friends. Because what I'd say to you is, as, as we come to the end of these, this, these Advent songs, and as we listen to Simeon sing out that this child is, is appointed to see the rising and fall of many, and, and also a sign to be opposed who will reveal the secret of your heart. Don't leave here today without determining where it is that you fall on the question of who is Jesus. Now is the time. 
There is no better because your soul depends on it. Don't let your heart be hardened to the gospel or to the Savior. Because, friends, if you do, there will be no hope for you. Let the gospel expose your heart. It's what it's supposed to do. You're like, this is so offensive to me. You're telling me I can't just kind of come along and, and God's not okay with the best I can give him? I'm trying my hardest. You're trying your hardest and you're running the exact opposite way. Let the gospel expose your heart, but then run to the Savior whose birth we celebrate this morning and the end of this week. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is a great mystery to us why you chose to do what you did the way you did it. I will confess, it is a great mystery to me why God would become flesh. Why the offended one would suffer, die, and rise again for the sake of his offenders. Because if it were me, I'd just start over. But you didn't. Instead, you have shown us parts of your character we never would have seen before. That you are long-suffering and loving and patient and merciful and gracious and good. And because of the freedom of the gospel, we can now rest. Oh. Lord, I pray for us this morning that you would let us rest. Some of us here are just running like crazy. And even right now, our hearts are going in a million different directions because we don't want to believe. We don't don't want to believe that it's that easy. We don't want to believe that you're that good, that we're that bad, or that we can't get it together ourselves. We don't want to believe it, and we're going to run like crazy. I pray that, Lord, by your Spirit, you would give us rest. Others of us are are here, and we've believed it, but, Lord, we've we've wandered from it because it's, it's so easy to take things back into our control and our independence to think that there are other hopes for us, but Jesus is our hope, so Lord, would you give us rest by your Spirit. And Lord, as we lean into this holiday in just a few days, I pray in the midst of the ribbons and the bows and the packages and the dinners and the desserts and the second desserts and the fourth desserts, that you would help us to find the longings of our souls met not in stuff under a tree or in Norman Rockwell picturesque family moments, but in a Savior who loved us. And I ask all of these things in the name of that Savior, Jesus. Amen.